Before we start today, we wanted to tell you that this episode discusses organ donation. Last week in Australia, it was Organ Donation Week, a week in which the federal government encourages you to have conversations with loved ones about donating your organs. And then, if it's something you want to do, they're encouraging you to register at donatelife.gov.au. When this match came up, it was harvest. Yeah, I get the call. Get to Bathurst, get on a plane, get here. We've got your liver. It's ready to go. He couldn't get home. So, because you know what harvest is harvest, you can't stop. This is Life on the Land, a Crazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Skye Manson, your host for this episode. This week, we're back with Heidi Castledon from Hovels Creek near Burroa on the southern tablelands of New South Wales. In her lifetime, Heidi has been the recipient of not one, but two organs, two livers, donated by strangers. These have saved her life, and in turn given her the ability to start her own business, get married, and have a family of her own. I think her story is beyond remarkable. The depths of her courage and resilience is something most of us would never have to encounter within lifetime, let alone by the age of 15, when organ donation first became a reality for her. This week, we hear more of her story, the loss of her mother, the woman who cared for her all her life, her marriage to James, and the birth of her daughter. What happened next? You had met James and you had become unwell. Yes. And you had your second transplant. Mm. And what happened next? Mm. Was it a much, was it a better so, take? Please tell me yes. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. It was incredible. It took two years uh, from them saying we need this pretty quickly um, to getting it. It was two years and they were two very, very long, difficult, sick years. James nursed me, yeah, um, unbelievably, um, yeah, unbelievable, the the way that he um, cared for me and got me through that. I don't think I would have, it would have been a lot easier to give up, let's put it that way, um, if I didn't have him there. Um, and and this time around the, the lead-up was very different because I knew what was coming um, and, and obviously being a lot older and with a lot more experience and just having been through all of this with mum, and we also, during that time, lost James's dad. Um, he had pancreatic cancer and had a very similar trajectory to mum. Um, doctor had been telling him it was a hernia or something for many years and the same, within a couple of months of diagnosis, he had passed away. Um, and, we, you know, I was really privileged to be with his family, um, you know, in caring for him and, 
and nursing him at home, his sister and mum, you know, allowed me to be there with them to support and, and help with him at home, which was a real, real privilege. We went through that whilst I was very sick and um, and we were in Burrell at his dad's place at the time and I actually officially went on the list, the transplant list, the day of John's funeral. We were at, at the house and he was becoming obviously very, very close to the end and I was becoming very unwell and so I just I took James into the bedroom and I just said, look, take me to the hospital, get me out of the way. Like just let somebody else take care of me because you can't and your family can't be distracted by this. Drop me off at the hospital and come home. And so his beautiful sister, Auntie, took me to the hospital in Inverell, which very quickly flew me off to Sydney, and which was exactly what we needed to do. I needed someone else to look after me and to, you know, let them have their time. So I, I didn't make it to John's funeral, which was very, very hard. All our beautiful friends were trying so hard, you know, fly to Armadale and we'll pick you up and we'll do this and we'll do that. And But I just thought I can't be there and be sick and need caring for and looking the way I do. I looked horrendous. Like I looked very, very sick. I can't be that distraction. And so I stayed stayed in Sydney in the hospital and um, which was the right decision as hard as it was. And And it was that day that they sort of had looked at everything and said, yeah, no, we can't. We can't do this anymore. You're back on the list. Um, so it was a pretty intense time. I guess you just, like, I keep saying, just do it. You just keep going. Well, I did have some periods during that time that I did get a bit better, had better times. And when I did get called for the second transplant um, and it finally came through, I was thankfully having a period of wellness because there'd been times where I was actually too sick to have the transplant. Because that, that's the balance. You've got to be unwell enough to be your turn on the list, but you've got to be well enough to survive it. And there were times that I wasn't. So when this match came up, I was well and it was harvest. So James was harvesting and so not around. And I, of course, got called at in the middle of the night sometime and he's in a paddock somewhere. And, um, yeah, get the call, get to Bathurst, get on a plane, get here. We've got your liver. It's ready to go. He couldn't get home. So because, you know, what harvest is harvest, you can't stop. He, no, no, I, I lunch. I'm sorry. He did come home. He couldn't stay. He came home, took me to Bathurst, put me on a plane and went back to the paddock. And, and, I, and I was fine with that because I knew you find things to laugh about. We laughed about it. Because of course it would happen in the middle of harvest. When else would it happen? <laughs> it's going to happen when it's you know conveniently we're in Sydney having a lovely weekend. Like that's, that's not when it happens. So yeah, he sent me off, and um, and my cousin, beautiful cousin who's living in Sydney across the road from the hospital, um, met me and was there with me until Dad and my sister got there. I did, I did feel this time going in. I remember. Yeah, saying goodbye to dad, you know, because he sort of came as far as you can go into the catacombs of the theatres. Came with me as far as you could go. And I remember saying goodbye and giving him mum's necklace, like a locket of mum's that I had, and you know, taking that off and giving it to him. And and I did have a moment of, okay, mate, yeah, okay. I imagine 
home, it was very hard for dad. But the next thing I know, I'm awake and in ICU and within oh, within hours, it's having a liver transplant is like changing the oil filter. It's, just, you know, I mean, it's not that simple. It's a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. But the, the, effect, the effect of it is putting a new filter in. So basically, you know, your blood has been going through this filthy, gunked up filter for however long. And so your body is full of poisons and toxins and um, and that's why, you you know, your skin goes yellow and so all, all the bile builds up. And so I was, I was a highlighter. I was like a fluorescent yellow highlighter. That's what the colour of my skin and my mm. eyes. Uh, yeah, within hours I woke up and I was pink. Like my eyes were white within a day. And mm. it was literally a new filter, cleaned everything out. Um and it couldn't have been a better match. And I remember them talking about it in pre-op before I went in. They were saying, this liver is amazing, which is it's a double-edged sword because you don't know who it's come from. They say, you know, this obviously has come from a young person who's been really healthy, that really looked after themselves, you know, like oh, we, we're guessing they perhaps are an athlete or, you know, someone who is really fit and healthy and looked after themselves really well this liver is pristine and it's a perfect match and it's just, it's just going to be amazing and it was it was that amazing that's how it was at the same time that liver's come from a young person who was living really well mm. that's really that's a one of those ones to wrap your head around that's one of those yeah. late night ones to think about um <laughs> yeah. yeah but for me what that meant was by the time James got there it was probably 36, 48 hours post-surgery, I knew when he was coming that I knew what time he was going to be there. I was out of bed. I was lapping the ICU on purpose when he got there. Now, he'd he'd put me on a plane, you know, a day or two beforehand looking horrendous and not knowing if he's going to see me again. And, yeah, we just laughed and laughed that's all all we could do just remember. <laughs> and he's like I've never seen you smile like this like I've never seen you smile like this and we just we just looked at each other and we're just laughing probably crying as well I don't know but yeah it was just one of those moments of like I'm still here and yet that the recovery was amazing as a couple no doubt things that you had spoken about in the time sort of leading up to this were about your plans and dreams for the future I'm presuming did you did you have a lot of that Mm. now in this moment you knew that these things could be realized yeah 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 definitely I think we didn't I don't know it's a weird one because it had been the majority of our relationship had really been dominated by this and we we had we had a moment to, it was probably about a month before I got the transplant, we sort of had this bit of moment of reality of if this goes on much longer, we can't do this. Like it was getting, it was getting too hard and we were, we were at that point. And physically I had about a month left to live. I was getting pretty close and, um, and, I, and I knew it this time. I felt it and I knew it. And I did have moments this time of, this might not happen. And so we had had conversations towards the end that, you know, maybe this isn't going to happen and maybe we can't do this. But we did also at the same time, which is sort of really bizarre 
concept. But as much as life was dominated by my illness, it also wasn't. We also just lived quite normally, which is sort of a bit of a bizarre contrast to on one hand be aware that perhaps you are not going to make it, but at the same time expecting that you will, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, you know, the human mind is, is it's bizarre. Um, and I think you do, you, your mind does whatever it needs to do to survive and to stay sane. Easy life was my goal. I didn't, not quite sure what that easy life looked like, but I just wanted it to be easy. Obviously, children are something that you discuss when you're in a relationship. Um, James knew from the start that the likelihood of me having a child is pretty minimal um, for a number of reasons. And I like I'd, I'd accepted that from, you know, a long time before that. And I don't know if I was okay with it, but it was just the thing. That's just how it was. But, again, that um, strange contrast that my mind or I don't know if it's my soul or what it is, still kind of just expected that was going to happen at some stage, even though I've had conversations with doctors that, you know, to prepare me for that and to know that this is, prob- this is probably not going to be your path, like you're probably not going to have this. And if you do, it's going to be really hard don't know if you want to put yourself through that we had sort of accepted it but not given up on it because you just can't and about a year we got got married a year after my transplant the transplant in November 2013 and we got married in October 2014 that's awesome that's a pretty quick turnaround yeah well I was just well I was yeah. just immediately well. And I was like, well, right, well, we've got that whole transplant business out of the way. So um, I suppose we probably get married now. Let's do that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we did. <laughs> and and um, now you have Polly. And then, and now we have Polly, which is, you know, that's another entire saga in itself. Because, yeah, obviously, you know, you're having a child, it's really difficult. And there was, but, you know, the transplant team said, look, if you want this, we will support you in this. We're, we're not actually expecting you going to make this happen. But if you want it, we're not going to stop you and we will support you in it. Um, because the, the transplant team is part of my family um, mm-hmm. and they are part of my life and they essentially anything I do, they help me do. And um, it took 12, 12 months to fall pregnant so just you know cutting to the punchline I had four miscarriages before I had Polly um and she was my last try and again if it hadn't been for James I'd have given up um I was done after the last one I I was really mentally and emotionally done Mm. and he just said no I'm like I'm not ready to be done and so I respected that and I and I and I deep down I because he was like that I could be I could feel the way I felt because he was prepared to carry us yeah like I could I could give up because he wasn't and um and thankfully he he did um did give that encouragement because we have her and yes we would have made a wonderful life without her if it was just us we'd have had a wonderful life but she is something else 
um, and our life is something else because of her. At some point in this journey, you had some more bad news, which came from um, as a result of a CT scan. What happened? Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, following the following the second transplant, I'd had to have some reparative surgery um, on some of the incisions. Obviously, you know, when you cut cut muscle and stitch it back together a lot, it has issues. And there'd been some tearing in the muscle abdominal wall, so I'd had some reparative surgery on that. Following that, um, 12 months or so afterwards, I was just having issues with a lot of pain in the, the area of that repairing, um, that repair site. And so I'd gone to have a CT to look at why that was happening. And it turned out, it, you know, I had an allergic reaction to the mesh they'd repaired with and blah, blah, usual stuff and so that that was done on a ct scan this was all during the time that i was you know trying to fall pregnant and and i and i can't remember what happened it sort of all happened at the same time and i can't remember which was first um but um a very very particular and thorough radiographer radiologist had reviewed the scan CT scan and found a golf ball sitting on my kidney. It wasn't a golf ball. It was a tumour the size of a golf ball. I hadn't swallowed a golf ball. And, yes, found this tumour sitting on my left kidney. It's obviously not supposed to be there. Um, And it was a a renal cell carcinoma. And uh, I found out about that reading the um, pathology report myself, waiting to see the doctor to get the results. You know, the receptionist just hands you your printed printed results and I was having a little read of it oh oh, she's giving me someone else's report oh gosh that's terrible that's oh that's that's my name yeah yeah carcinoma yeah for cinema yeah oh okay and uh then sat in the waiting room for half an hour not blinking waiting to talk to the doctor um and yeah found out that yeah I had kidney cancer and at the same time, uh, I was already pregnant. I'd finally fallen pregnant after 12 months. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I knew. I think I found out that week. I sort of, it all just, it was a blur. It all happened oh at the same time. So I finally I'm find out I'm pregnant. And <laughs> I must have found out about the cancer first because the surgery was scheduled. I had to, yes, that's how it happened. I had to have half the kidney taken out. Um, with this tumour and that was all scheduled for March then I found yeah then discovered I was pregnant so just as I scheduled this surgery discovered I was pregnant so the choice was to wait wait until the pregnancy was at a safe and viable stage and then have this surgery or do it now and hope for the best or wait until after I'd had the baby, which um, was not a very appealing appealing option because, you know, just what happens in your body and the way your hormones and um, everything operate when you're pregnant, the tumour would have just gone nuts um, given all of that. So that was really not an option. And then the thought of having surgery right after having a baby, it was just not an option. So I cancelled I cancelled the surgery. I just needed to just wait a bit and process and work it out. 
Um, and it was a pretty major decision because they said, you know, uh, surgery at this stage, you will most likely miscarry just the trauma in your body. We don't expect a pregnancy would survive that. Um, and then a few weeks later, uh, I miscarried anyway, which was really, really hard because it, you know, it had finally happened and then to miscarry. But at the same time, I have to trust nature. I've got to trust that, you know, this decision was taken out of my hands and and so I could I then <clears throat> went on to have the surgery and and that surgery was worse than my transplant, the recovery, unbelievably. Um I just I wasn't thinking, I think I kidney, probably keyhole, please, you know, pop a scope in there and lop it off and <clears throat> whip it out. It's not how it happened. <laughs> you I went in with a form signed that they would try a keyhole and if that didn't work, they'd open me up and um they very much opened me up. So I woke up in a pretty bad way and that was that was probably my most difficult recovery from anything. And um, and so, yeah, in hindsight, I could not have done that with a newborn and I would, I don't think at whatever stage she was at or that that baby was at, it would have survived that if it was, if I was still pregnant. So, so as things do, they fall the way they're supposed to. And um, and I'm a big believer in we don't always get what we want, but we do get what we need. And that was how that needed to happen. So so yeah, that um, that cancer was taken out, and I was very lucky that I haven't had to. I didn't have to have chemo or radio or anything like that. It was just out. Um, but without going to too much personal detail, my fertility did shut down for a while after that, just the trauma on my body, thankfully, obviously, did return. Um, and, yeah, I went on to fall pregnant a number of other times, could not sustain it. Just taking a quick break from Heidi's story with a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Antola Trading. Based in Outback, Queensland, this entire female-owned and run business is known for its stylishly designed work shirts for men, women and children. They're the shirts you've always wanted with the features you've always needed, like longer sleeves to keep you covered from the sun, pockets that fit your smartphone and beautiful 100% Australian brushed cotton that is soft from day one. There's a story behind every limited edition shirt because Antola Trading believe in producing the highest quality products, as well as promoting the amazing men, women and kids on the land that they are created for. The newly released collection ranges from plain colours with contrasting collars and cuffs to more unique florals, watercolour cockatoos and ever-popular ginghams and, of course, classic stripes and spots. Head to antolatrading.com. That's A-N-T-O-L-A. Or follow the link in our show notes to see the newest collection available now. Once these limited edition shirts are gone, they'll never be reprinted. So jump online before your favourite sells out. And, um, and yeah, as I said before, got to a point of I can't do this anymore. 
it was I'd really got to breaking point with it. It's a very rough roller coaster, and anyone else who's who has dealt with this knows. And I think in, until you have experienced it, you don't know how hard it is, um, and it just wrecks you. And you think, you know, it's my fault. I'm this most you know basic human function. Like this is what we are here to do. I can't do it. What you know. Um, and yeah, you get very, very down on yourself and you do blame yourself and, you know, and we had no, no concrete reasons why this was happening. Like, and that, that's the thing with reproductive medicine and, and fertility is that there's no concrete answers. They can't, there's so much, they can't test, they can't trial, they can't experiment, they can't. So, so often you just don't have answers and that's really hard to deal with because I'm an answers person. Like I want to understand, give me, give me everything. I want to know. So eventually, yeah, I did, did fall pregnant with Polly and uh, we had seen another specialist who'd they'd identified that antibodies I had developed in my blood were contrary to sustaining a fetus. Basically, I, my body was attacking and killing them. Um, so once... We got her to, I think, about 10, 12 weeks. I had first immunoglobulin infusion that I went on to have weekly through the entire rest of the pregnancy. So basically immunoglobulin absorbs or soaks up the antibodies in my blood to stop my blood attacking the baby's blood and destroying her blood cells, which in turn destroys her. Uh, So that meant I moved to Sydney at, 20, I was travelling to Sydney from 10 weeks once a week, which is about three and a half, four hours. Drive up the night before, full day in hospital, having infusion on the Friday, drive home, feel pretty rotten for a few days, just start to, because the infusion would make me feel unwell, recover, just start to recover and it's time to go again. Um, So that was from 10 weeks to 35 when she was born moved to Sydney at 26 weeks, I think, 25, 26 weeks, twice weekly scans. At any of those scans, they could have said, okay, baby needs to come out now. Um, so James was coming up every weekend. I was was in Sydney on my own during the week. He'd come up for the weekend and for those scans to see her and to also be there just in case they said, actually, let's go, baby's out. Uh, so that was pretty hectic. Um, and exhausting and being away from home all that time and um, but pretty incredible because all all done through public health all done all given to me for no other reason than I'd asked for it I'm talking to my my transplant physician who has been looking after me since I was 15 from day one you know they 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 got me through I was I was alive I was well I was living a good life they don't owe me more than that. I then asked for more and said, now I want a baby. Now, now give me this. And, you know, they obviously, they didn't hesitate. And they, so I had, you know, Australia's best fetal medicine team. And, you know, I had the, the man, the fetal med specialist I had was the man who had developed this immunoglobulin and the, the scanning of the pressure. So the pressure in her brain was being scanned every week. That's what they were watching to gauge how she was. He'd worked with the guy in London who developed this technique. So I had the best of everything 
and it was just given to me and um, because I asked for it, um, which, is, <clears throat> which is pretty incredible mm. um, and I'm incredibly grateful for. Uh, and, yeah, so then I, she was born at 35 weeks, um, cesarean, you know, everything was very planned, very organised. Um, she had some hemolytic damage, so her blood was um, my that's why they brought her out at 35. Her, uh, my blood was, was starting to damage hers. So she had five weeks in NICU. Um, she was breathing support the first few days, all of that sort of thing. But she is perfectly fine and she is beyond healthy, beyond. <laughs> um, she's she's hooray, nearly three. If anyone has that. an almost three-year-old, you know what I mean. She's, <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Um, and you know, and I, and all of it was worth it. Every minute of it worth it. And I'm, I'm not going to say it wasn't hard. It was really hard. Um, but we chose to do it, and it was worth it. Wow! I just cannot believe your story um, and the amount of health considerations you've had to endure in your life. Um, well done on getting through it uh, seriously and I know that you're you have said to me before we recorded this interview that you're not about pity in any form but it really has been such a huge thing Um, I'd like to talk to you about how two things um, about how you feel about organ donation and also just how the whole whole thing and all your assistance um, sits with you and the kind of indebtedness of it or perhaps you don't feel mm. indebted and, and you are completely comfortable with that, which is a great thing. Mm. Uh, um, yes, I feel indebted, uh, absolutely, but not in, a, not in a negative way, not that it negative, is a negative feeling. It's, and may, maybe indebted isn't the right word. Um, and, yes, I've, I've been given more than my share of trials, but, and challenges, but I've been given more than my share of help as well, which completely balances it out. And I guess maybe that's that's how you get through it and that's how you survive it is that it's balanced. It isn't all bad. And two people and two families have given me a part of their body, you know, and like you think about it, um, if you're, you're walking down the street and it's cold, you've got a coat and you give it to them, like that's a weird thing to like give somebody your possession that you don't know and you've got no connection with them. You just go, oh, yeah, that looked really cold. Here, have a jumper. It's weird because it's to give away your things. But to give somebody part of your body is it just, you know, when you really break it down and, and think about that, it's quite extraordinary really. Um, but two, two people did that for me and two families said yes to that because ultimately it is up to the family um, at the time and you know in the whilst they're going through their very worst thing and I, I know what that worst thing is like to go through that's pretty intense um, to you know and intrusive on that grief and you know that process that family's going through so to say yes in those circumstances to think of somebody else in those circumstances is huge and it's of no gain to you whatsoever. You don't get anything out of it. But the value of it, uh, it's just inexplicable. I mean, it's, it's like the way I describe it, you don't just stop somebody from being sick. Like, yeah, okay, I was 
sick and it was awful and if I didn't get it, I was going to die. But getting it didn't just stop me from being sick and experiencing what I was experiencing at the time. It gave me a life and it allowed me to get married. It allowed me to start my own business. It allowed me to have a child, a child who's going to contribute to the world. She's going to go on to do good things. She's going to go on to have children someday. All those sorts of things like that, like the, the impact and the effect of that is just exponential. Um, and it um, is something that, of course, you don't think about it in your moment of grief. Why should you think about it? You shouldn't think about anybody else. You know, that's time in your life when you are allowed to be selfish and think this is the worst thing that I can go through and I'm going through it. I don't care about anybody else. And so it's, you know, it's no small thing, but the impact of it is just immense. Um, and and I guess I, I really urge people to please, if it's right for you, register, be an organ donor. You don't know what you can do. And, you know, and it isn't just me that's helped by that one person. You know, you can help up like hundreds of people with up to sort of five, six, seven with organs, but also, you know, tissue and skin and cells and there's so much that can be used um, and can, you know, you can give someone their sight. Imagine that. Someone's blind. They've never seen a sunrise. Give them eyes and they can see it. Like that's, you know, um, I mean, you don't get to know that because obviously you're not here anymore, but, you know, it's a pretty immense thing. Um, and, and I also understand if it isn't right for people, if they're not comfortable with it, I absolutely understand it. You know, having had that experience of losing mom and, you know, and, and James's dad and having, you know, people who are our people, they're part of our lives and our souls and they're everything to us. The thought of giving part of that away, I understand if you don't, you can't do it. I do understand. And it's never, I've never thought, oh, why wouldn't anybody be a donor? You know, you're dead. You don't, what are you going to do with it? I've never ever thought like that um, because I understand it. Um, but but yeah, there's um, you know if you're unsure, read, educate yourself, you know. And if you still don't feel comfortable, that's okay. But if you do, please go online and do it. Like you know, it takes a minute. It's not on your license. It's not on your license anymore. There's nothing, um, you know. That, that says what you want unless you've registered and you say this is what I want to do. And, you know, and you can specify. You can say, well, I would like to give this. I don't want to give my heart. Please don't take my heart. And they don't. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot a lot in the process. Um, so, yeah, I guess I would just, would just really, you know, love it for, to be something that people think about um, and think about the impact um, and that, you know, if you needed it, would you take it? I guess when you're thinking about can you give it if you need it, would you take it? I mean, we couldn't speak to anybody better about this subject, someone who has been a recipient, just amazing. When you look back on your life and all the trials and tribulations, like how do you reflect on it? Can you believe what you've been through? Um, yes and no. Um, I some I forget I honestly forget because it isn't it's not my identity it's not who I am I'm not oh, that girl that had the transplant and cancer and couldn't have a baby and that's that isn't who I am 
those are things that have happened to me and they've absolutely shaped my life and who I am and how I do things and, um, you know, my interaction with people and my response to things, absolutely all been shaped. Everybody's is by their experience. It's just that's how humans are. We're shaped by our experience. But I don't, I do forget about it because I don't dwell on it. I don't, um, I don't catalogue it, you know, and, you know, and until I'm, you know, speaking with someone like you and, and talking about it, it doesn't come up. You know, I, I, have, I have people that know me quite well who will possibly listen to this and go, oh, my gosh, <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. We, didn't, we didn't know that. And which we spoke about before, you, the cards you were dealt are the cards you were dealt and you do what you do with them. Um, and I think, I think it's possibly made me a better person. Um, I don't know. It's, I don't know. And, not, you know, not to say that I am a wonderful, I don't do everything right all the time. I don't always make the right decisions and, you know, and I get cross and I get annoyed and, I, you know, I'm a human. Um, but I think it's, I think I'm thankful to have a, I don't know, a, a bit of an insight into some things and to have an understanding and perhaps a bit of empathy, you know, just naturally gives you because, you know, I think I think I find it harder to see other people going through hard things because I know how hard it is. When I see someone else or know someone close to me going through a similar thing, I think it breaks my heart more because I know that feeling. Yeah. You know, we, we lost a friend last year um, to cancer. It was just becoming way too prevalent. Um, you know, she was she was our age. And with a young, you know, son doing his HSC. And, you know, it was horrendous and devastating knowing what comes after and how it feels in those weeks after. I think it just, those things affect you a lot more because, you know. I think that is really relatable for lots of people who've been through shock, trauma, sadness, grieving, losing someone. Once you know yeah. the pain, it's so much worse when you see it in someone else. Yeah. Um, we have come all this way and we haven't even spoken about <laughs> Castleton and Co. So briefly tell me <laughs> about what you do with your days these days. Oh, I sew. I sew. Well, if you ask Polly, I make dresses at my working shop. <laughs> That's my technical job description. I make dresses in my working shop. Um so yes, I have yeah, I have my little clothing label, um, which started just you know at home in our spare room several years ago, just making things for friends and wedding dresses and my wedding dress and you know, mum always did all of those things, make everybody's formal dress and everyone's wedding dress and um, and yeah, just I've been sewing since I was six, as as I you know talked before that mum always sewed um, and taught me. From yeah, when I was very little, making dolls' clothes, and and it's just something I've always done. I haven't done formal training. Um, I loathe to call myself a dressmaker or a designer because I've not been to school for that. Been to the the school of mum, um, and the, the school of um, learning as you go. Uh, but yeah, I you know just it's become it has just evolved into a viable business. Most most of the time, it's viable. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, COVID and things like that. But um, what kind of clothing is it at the moment? It's women's women's clothing. Um, we I, have, I work with a graphic designer, a very dear friend of mine, Catherine, who we work together to create uh, prints. 
So we do some um, printed fabrics that um, that she's created these prints together and they're obviously they're exclusive to us. We print them ourselves um, and we're just about to bring a new one out in spring, which I'm very, very excited about because we've not brought out for a little while. We've been a bit um, at the moment, we're doing a lot of beautiful, really beautiful linens, um, you know, skirts, tops, dresses, it's beautiful colours in plain linens, just using premium quality fabrics. Our construction is just, is everything, yeah, focus on beautiful quality over masses of racks of stuff and I make clothes that you can just wear and feel good in and forget about, you know, hitching it up or pulling it down or whatever wearing that it's see-through you just wear it and enjoy wearing it um and yeah that's why I make it because I want people to enjoy wearing it how do we find you you can find me at um castleton.co it's my website uh on instagram at castleton underscore code and currently we have all of our beautiful linen range on the buy from the bush marketplace website um so you can get through there at the moment um or you can just pop me a message and say hey i like that can you send it to me um yeah we're pretty pretty accessible anyway well heidi it's been huge chatting to you thank you so much for sharing your story oh it's my pleasure it's my pleasure thank you for um for inviting me for a chat you think oh gosh it's just my life who wants to hear about that so i hope that there's been something in there that you know, somebody can take something from and and, um, is of value to somebody. Heidi is one of those people I really hope to meet in the flesh one day. I feel as though resilience and reality would seep out of her And I could definitely do with a good dose of that on some days. Thank you, Heidi, for sharing your story. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you, Antola Trading, for sponsoring these past two episodes. And remember, if you'd like to receive a special gift in the mail in the form of a Rachel Castle Grazy Her Tote, then subscribe to the magazine for two or three years online at grazyher.com.au. We'll be back with you next week with another Life on the Land story.